science enthusiasts. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you probably know our dogs, Bunsen and Beaker. They're the science dogs on social media. This show takes what's best from their account, the curiosity and fun found there, and swirls it into podcast form. Every week, we're going to take some deep dive into an area of science and look at the research that's going on with our pets. We'll also have an expert guest who will enthrall you with their area of knowledge. This is The Science Podcast. Welcome back to The Science Podcast. We hope you're happy and healthy out there. So exciting news, all of our family is now double vaccinated. So that's that's amazing. I know uh, some of the American listeners are like, we got vaccinated months ago. Well, it's just been a little bit of a slower, slower rollout in Canada. I think Alberta is inching towards 75% first shot, 50% double shot, um, with the, the goal of everybody in Canada. Hopefully we hit that 80% double vaccinated by September, which is awesome. That means so many people in Canada will be virtually immune to all of the different strains and variants of uh, coronavirus, and we can really get back to normal. In fact, they allowed the Red Deer Royals marching band, the band that Adam's in, to practice at the end of June. And um, they had three practices and Adam really enjoyed that. That was one of the big things he missed during coronavirus. On the science podcast this week in science news, uh, I found a really interesting article about the science of studying how the Stone Age people would have lived in caves and produced art in caves. Remember, they didn't have any light sources. So it's all about how they navigated those dark caves really cool. In pet science, we've got, well, it's an inconclusive uh, study. It's an inconclusive scientific look at, at why cats wiggle their butts before they jump. <laughs> Our guest and ask an expert is a scientist who studies dogs and dog socialization, Monique Adele. Um, it's a fascinating discussion. You'll love it because it's right up the alley of many people who listen to the show, Dogs and Science. Hey, dogs, why did the caveman musician like to play during landslides? Well, it, it, it was a real rock concert. <laughs> okay, on with the show. I think I heard that one on the Flintstones. Because there's no time like science time. This week in science news. We're going to talk about, as I mentioned uh, with the joke, Stone Age cave people. So this study comes about, um, I saw it on, again, on my, my news feed, I get sent articles from different websites and it was a, it was a, a study, it was a, it was a study and an examination of how the technology um, ancient people would have used to navigate caves and also make art in caves. So it was, it was actually, they took different materials into the caves to figure out what they would have used. And I'm sorry, I'm going to get this name wrong. It's um, the, the, the geologist who, who's the lead of this, this, the study um, from the University of Basque County in, in Spain, Inaki Intraxulub. Uh, sorry if I got that wrong if, and you're listening to this. So as Inaki, the lead geologist of the study, went on to say, torches, if you think about like an old school torch, was probably just one of the main light sources that the cave people would have used to both navigate and make art. Um, and they were, they, they tested different types of tools to understand why humans journeyed in the earth and, and how they created art there. So the caves that they looked at were caves that artwork was found in. And um, they they used materials in those caves that would have been available to the Stone Age people of that time. 
So some of the things they had were juniper branches, uh, animal fat, and they also measured from those different light sources the intensity and how long it would have burnt. One of the things they quickly found was the, the early technology, each type of light source had its own pros and cons that made it really only specific to certain things that people would have done in the caves. For example, if you have a torch made of juniper branches, those tor- those those torches really are only great when you're moving about. They're not super awesome when they're stationary. So I don't know how many movies I've seen where there's like a torch hanging on the wall and it's lit and it lights up the whole room. Uh, Maybe that's because that's using like some kind of oil-soaked rag, not sure. Uh, But juniper, juniper branch torches only worked for the team if they were moving. The the torches produce a nice wide glow, but they only burn for about 41 minutes and then they're gone. Your light source is totally gone. So you'd have to make a whole bunch of them and you they don't work great when you're just standing there. They also produce a lot of uh a lot of smoke. If the if the stone people had to stay in one location and not move about, Um, the ancient stone lamps filled with animal fat worked pretty good and they offered about a half an hour of candle-like light. Another thing they looked for was leftover telltale signs of things like ash burns and and things like that. So Naki in some of the narrow passages, um, those Paleolithic people had used stone lamps. But when there was really high ceilings, where the, the, you could have more smoke, right? In, in a uh, shorter ceilinged passageway, you'd smoke yourself out if you had one of those torches. Um, there was evidence that the torches were used. So the people were really smart, right? Like they, they always used the better choice of light for the situation in the caves. Deep in those caves, stone artists painted about 50 images and the images included things like bison, um, horses and goats, and you could only, I guess you could only see these if you climbed up on this ledge. And what was really interesting is while the paintings are in a common cave, they're in a weird spot within the cave. And that's probably why they weren't noticed until 2015. Now, one of the reasons why the art was done up on that ledge led them back to the light sources that the these Paleolithical people had at that time. Using only a torch or a lamp from below, the paintings and engravings, engravings were hidden. But fireplaces on the ledge illuminated the whole gallery so anybody on the cave floor could see it. So that suggests the artist may have wanted to keep their work hidden. The last point made in these findings is a really interesting one. These The art would deep within the cave wouldn't have occurred without the, these ancient people being able to harness fire. And it wouldn't have occurred without different methods of producing that fire. And it's just one of the pieces of the puzzle to try and study our ancestors from long ago. That's science news for this week. This week in Pet Science, we're going to break down why cats maybe wiggle their butts before they pounce. Now, this is brought on because our oldest son, Duncan, he just got himself a cat. So now he is a pet owner. And his cat, I guess, is a rescue. It's a rescue off the street. Um, it was just kind of like a random homeless cat, um, and uh, it, he fed it, and uh, now it's his cat, and he's got it fixed, <laughs> and his cat's name is George. It's actually a pretty cute cat. 
<laughs> and one of the things, um, Adam's been to visit the cat a few times uh, with Chris. I'm allergic to cats, so I, I can't be around cats for very long. Um, but I, the greatest toy that they found that this cat loves is zip ties and going after zip ties. And it wiggles its butt and then pounces on the zip tie. So it got me thinking, and like you've seen videos and a lot of people have gifts of that cat kind of wiggling itself back and forth. But why do cats wiggle before they pounce. Not every cat does, but some do. And there, I guess I've tried to find some research on this and there isn't any. There's no conclusive research why cats do this weirdo behavior. And I found something close. There was a scientist that was kind of talking about, I guess, why they could wiggle their butts. Um, and it was in a, another article, uh, called like, why do cats and dogs love a good head scratch? But the short answer is that the, from this, the scientist, John Hutchinson, is that we just don't know. The butt wiggling, one of the, the ideas due to physics that he, that this, uh, this animal scientist kind of proposed is when the cat wiggles its butt and it presses its hindquarters into the ground and gives it more traction for launching itself forward, right? Cats are, cats are extremely good hunters. And by wiggling down and getting in, it's maybe like, uh, I've seen some people, uh, students at track when they sprint, they kind of like wiggle back and forth into the starting blocks to make sure they're like really, really planted. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's one of the ideas is they wiggle down to get more traction before they launch themselves. Um, the other more advanced idea, and this would be really hard to test, like this is going to require, I guess, some cats and some uh, cat scientists, <laughs> is that it may give them better vision. Um, it may increase, have some kind of sensory role, like moving back and forth, gives them a different kind of 3D picture of wherever they're launching themselves at. Cause remember cats are terrible at seeing up close and that wiggling back and forth may give them a little bit more idea, especially if the prey is relatively close to them. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a couple ideas. The last one, and it's just amusing as well as that. It could just limber them up like you stretch before you go work out or you run. I need to do more of that. Do you, does anybody else stretch before they run or they work out? I just can't be bothered. I should probably do some wiggling myself like a cat. Anyways, this is a really short little chat in, in pet science. It's kind of cute. Uh, if, you have, if you have a cat and it wiggles itself, those are the three reasons brought to you by the, the best I could do finding, <laughs> finding out on, uh, on different studies and through different science articles. That's Pet Science for this week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Science Podcast this week. The Science Podcast is always going to be free to download, but if you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. The first one is sign up on our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Bunsen Burner. There's multiple tiers of support. We have a ton of fun with the patron group. You get to be on the podcast. You get postcards from Bunsen and Beaker. You get swag. You get early pictures. You get a whole bunch of awesome stuff. So check it out. The lowest tier is only five bucks a month. The other way you could support the show is checking out our merch shop. Our merch shop is hilarious. It's got all of these adorable cartoons of Bunsen and Beaker. We keep producing more. I just want to thank the people that have supported the show that way. We're really, really proud of our merch shop because the the merch, the clothes, is really high quality. The colors are vibrant, and um, we come up with some really fun designs all the time. So check it out. That's at BunsenBurnerBMD.com. Thanks, everybody. On to the interview. 
It's time for Ask an Expert on the Science Podcast, and I have Assistant Professor Monique Udell with me today. How are you doing today, Monique? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Where are you calling into the podcast from? So I am in Corvallis, Oregon. Oh, Oregon. Very cool. I love Oregon. It's yeah. a beautiful state. Absolutely. Beautiful. And this time of year, we can get outdoors more, so it's it's extra beautiful. True, true, true. Yeah. Like it's a lo- it's like, it's kind of like, um, I'm trying to think what it's similar to in Canada. It's similar to BC. And uh, Monique, you are an assistant professor. Uh, where, where are you a persistent professor at? So I'm at Oregon State University. I am in the Animal and Rangeland Sciences Department. So we'll get into the, all of that because you are a perfect fit for the science podcast. Emphasis on PAWD podcast. The other question we ask our guests kind of right off the start are, is like, uh, are you and your family doing okay with coronavirus? Are, are things going along okay there? Yeah, we're, we're managing really well. We've been very lucky. Um, we're all in good health. And, you know, we have a, a bit of a new routine to figure out as does everybody, but, but we're doing well overall. Have you, have you got your shots or a shot? Yes, the adults in the the household are vaccinated, and I'm looking forward to to opportunities for children to get more protection in the coming, hopefully, coming months. Okay, so let's talk about you and your background in science. What what training do you have? Uh, you're assistant professor, but what's your what's your training in science, Monique? That's a great question. So so my training is actually pretty diverse. Uh, as an undergraduate student, I started out as a biology major. I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, so I was pre vet pre med. And then about halfway through, discovered a love for animal behavior. So I double majored in psychology and then went to graduate school in a behavior analysis experimental psychology program and did a secondary focus in zoology. So I've sort of been bouncing back and forth between various psychology and biology degrees um, throughout to get my training. That's that's amazing. So that makes sense for what you do right now, I guess. And well, like I said, we'll get into that a little later. What what was the bug that got you into both like this type of science? Was it something when you were young? Did you always like science or uh, like psychology is a type of science? What was something, did something grab you when you were younger? You know, I think it really started with a love for animals. I had a love for animals for as long as I can remember um, when I was really, really young. I was already, you know, I had pets, lots of pets in my home. I was already outdoors looking to take care of um, lizards and turtles. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Florida. So we, oh. <laughs> we had different species, but um, just really interested in that and, and wanted to become either a veterinarian or a zookeeper. And so I, I latched on to that and that really fueled my interest in science. And um, really, the, the interest in psychology started as an extension of that. It started as an interest in, in animal behavior and realizing that there was much more I wanted to know about behavior and the way brains worked than I um, had just in my biology degree alone. And so it sort of expanded out from there. Oh, man. Were you, were you the type of kid that was like would gather up buckets of turtles? I, I actually had a whole little um, enclosures for for lizards, and I would, you know, yeah, turtles and frogs, <laughs> and do my best to take care of them. Um, a funny story about when my family, when I was young, a teenager, we went on a big driving trip down the West Coast, all the way down to Disneyland, and we in Oregon, we stopped. I don't know where, I forget where. It was like a little campsite, 
and uh, we went swimming in the river because my my siblings and I are all excellent swimmers. We did competitive swimming, and there were these salamanders like in the river. We was we'd never seen them before ever in our lives because we're from Alberta. Like the, the, you're, it's like a fluke if you find a salamander or a newt. Mm-hmm. And I remember my little sister had gathered up like pails of these salamanders, and then as we were leaving, that we saw all of these warning signs like "Do not touch the salamanders; they're poisonous." And we're like, "Oh man." Um, maybe that explains why my sister is the way she is today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I actually had a similar experience when I moved to Oregon. I had no idea that, that you shouldn't touch, or at least I, you know, now I understand it's, it's, you know, a little bit looser than that. You know, you should wash your hands quickly if you touch them out here, but having grown up around lizards that were perfectly fine to handle, <laughs> I was quite surprised to find out too. Oh, were you grabbing salamanders like out of the streams and stuff? I did pick one up and then They're I was so like, cute. oh, it has warning coloration. We should check this. <laughs> oh, well, you know more than, you know, you know more than teenagers now. So I guess you'd be like, wait, this is fishy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, I just remember how cute they are. They're just cute little lizards. They are. They're super cute. So the question I have for you with your with your training now in science and, and what, you, what you're working on, could you talk to us about some of the areas of research that you're working in right now? Like you've, you've studied a lot of really interesting stuff like human-animal interactions and bonding. Um, sure. So yeah, really what I'm especially interested in at the moment are bonds between animals and people. And I, this sort of came about from a history of being interested in social development and social bonding more generally um, in both human children and in human-animal interactions. And a lot of my early work focused primarily on dogs and wolves and how their social development was similar and different to one another. I'm really trying to understand what makes dogs so commonplace in human environments? Why are they so successful around <laughs> us? Um, why are we so interested in, in acquiring these animals in many cases and taking care of them and making them members of our family? And um, and really, it was this evolution of thought from wanting to understand their social cognition, which I'm still very fascinated about. And at the time, that was the thing that people believed made dogs so special, is that they they had these social cognitive abilities that maybe surpassed other species. And in many years of working with dogs and wolves and realizing that um, when, you know, you work with with wolves, I work with wolves that have been raised and hand reared by by people who are going to live in captivity their whole life. And these wolves are very good with people and also just incredibly smart, just very sharp. Um, And seeing that their social cognition matched or in, in some cases even surpassed what we were seeing with dogs. And really what it was about dogs is that they were just incredibly socially focused um, they were hypersocial in that they almost retained a juvenile or childlike social quality into adulthood. Aww. And this is, yeah, and this is one of the things that probably makes dogs so successful. This um, ability to really pay close attention to social cues and to sort of capitalize on being <laughs> in this human social environment um, and and even, you know, work their way into our hearts and in our lives, um, and also their social flexibility and how one dog can be very different in different environments. And many dogs can look very different depending on how they live their lives, whether they're working dogs or free roaming Mm. or pets, um, they can adapt socially really well too. And so it's just, this has just been a fascinating area for me. And, and I think it's the recognition that dogs are these incredibly social animals, but they're also really socially flexible. 
And if they're spending so much time with us in these social relationships, I really wanted to understand the quality of those relationships. So now we know that they're, you know, they're in this with us. How can we make those relationships better? What do those relationships look like as they're forming? What are the different styles of a relationship that a dog and human can form? And how can we help both people and animals live better lives by improving those relationships? Oh man, I'm love. I'm just smiling from ear to ear. I just I can't wait to d- dig into a little bit of this. So when you study the social inter- and you know the interactions of, of wolves and and people and and dogs and people, how did you test that? Could you did you like could you run us through some of maybe some of the the like the experimental design? Yeah. So a lot of the early studies really focus on trying to understand what dogs and wolves were paying attention to and how well they could use information we were providing to them to solve problems in their environment. So a lot of these early studies were, they seem quite simple to us because they're such a key part of our social development. For example, following a point Mm -hmm. or looking where another person is gazing um, or even following verbal cues. You know, this is an, an important and almost critical part of the way that we learn as we develop as humans. And dogs seem to be really good at that in many cases, especially <laughs> yeah. pet dogs. Yeah. And um, and so the question was really, is this something that dogs specially evolved to do? Um, and, and that contributes to their success with humans? Um, or is it something that maybe dogs and, and wolves share the capacity for? And it's their different lifetime experiences or different aspects of their development that result in different sensitivity to these sorts of signals. Um, And so that's really where it came from. So a a study might look like having two containers that could hold food or maybe hold trapped food. You point at one of those containers, you go back to a neutral position. On the other end of the arena or testing room is a dog or a wolf. The dog or wolf is then released and allowed to approach one of these two containers and do they go to the one you point to. Um, And various variations on, on those sort of tests are really simple, but really trying to get at Um, Are they paying attention? How well are they responding? And it turns out that if a dog or a wolf is raised with people and has lots of opportunities to experience these sorts of things, people feeding them by hand or um, showing them where things are and pointing at them in their environment, then they do really well in these tasks. Um, But as it turns out, even, even for domestic dogs, if they don't really have those lifetime experiences, then they aren't as good at those tasks initially, but they can learn them very quickly. Because what dogs have is this inherent social interest um, and this this intensity in terms of how sensitive they are to social information. But they still have to learn how to use these cues just like people do. So they may not know it, but they're excited to learn it or they're happy or curious to learn it. Absolutely. They're watching. They're persistent. um, And when it comes to social versus a non-social task – the level of persistence and focus towards the social cues, those social tasks is just much higher in domestic dogs. Those seem to be things that are just really stand out to them, what's going on in their social world. And I think that makes them just really adept at learning new things when it comes to the social realm. And it also partly contributes to their flexibility. <laughs> and uh, and the wolves, the wolves you, you said the wolves were just as good as the dogs if they've been raised with, with humans. Mm-hmm. Was there a discrepancy between like a uh, wolf 
not i guess you i don't know did you test it on like random wild wolves or that's kind of like dangerous i don't i don't know yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah a, a typical wild wolf would probably not get close enough to test do these right right <laughs> have to be some kind of uh, that was a silly question because i was like yeah they'll just you know they're, they you don't want to trap a wolf for for that kind of science i guess <laughs> yeah but i mean it's a good question so right, there are there are wolves in captivity that have not been human ra- raised even in in a lot of zoos and a lot of facilities um there you know maybe a, a wolf comes in as an adult because of an injury or because mm. of a relocation or um maybe that wolf was raised differently and and just more of the sort of the older hands off way. Um, in many facilities, that's still pretty typical. And so we have tried to do things with some of those animals, but as you might expect, um, even in captivity, they're often quite fearful of people. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's one of the advantages to socializing animals in captivity, if you know that they're always going to live around humans, is that it helps reduce some of that stress and fear. And Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't want to stress the animal out for science. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Now the second the second part of what you're talking about how you you wanted to improve these relationships for the future and for right now could you give us some idea what that what what that's about like some specifics I'm so sure. curious yeah so in humans um, for you know the last quite a few decades actually since about the 1960s 1970s there's been a lot of research on attachment theory. And so this is probably a term most people have heard in one realm or another, but often with respect to relationships between humans. Um, And so it's, you know, early attachment is the attachment bond typically formed between parents and their offspring. Mm. And there's all sorts of research that shows how different styles of interaction and attachment towards parents on the part of offspring can lead to a host of outcomes later in life, including things like friendship attachments and relationship attachments later in life. And so that's, that's where a lot of people have heard about this. Um, but actually, that lit- literature dates back a couple of decades previous to where it originated in ethology. It was actually initially the study of attachment relationships between non-human animals. And mm-hmm. so we've kind of come full circle on this. Um, and, and we've brought it back to this looking at, from the animal's perspective in many cases, what that attachment bond is like between a dog or a cat and their caretakers in their human homes. Um, And so this is just one element of that. We also ask questions about what the human attachment to the animal is like, but it's newer to ask the question from the animal's perspective. And, And what we find is that some animals have very secure attachments to their owners, which looks like a bond where the, the animal can utilize the, the human as what we call a secure base. So when they're around that person, they can also come visit, they can venture towards that person, but they also can explore the environment, venture away, try new things. Um, this would be, for example, like a dog at a dog park. You take your dog to the dog park and it checks in with you periodically, but is very happy <laughs> to go out and meet other dogs and sniff the trees and the bushes. That's probably a dog with a secure attachment. Whereas other dogs might have an insecure attachment, which still means that they're bonded to you, but your presence might not fully alleviate their stress. So this might be a dog, for example, if you go somewhere new um, or unusual or even to like, for example, the vet's office. This is the dog that 
is trying to seek comfort from you, but is probably doing so by hiding behind your legs. Um, And so there are these various types of attachment relationships. And by understanding those, there's all sorts of information from the human literature that tells us about what we can do as owners or caretakers, um, what can potentially help the dog in various situations or the cat in various situations be more confident. Um, And we also can look at how different experiences that the owner and animal are experiencing together, for example, animal-assisted therapy or trips out and about, how these are affecting that relationship. And so that's really where a lot of our work is focused. Oh, wow. That's cool. And is there any tips or tricks from the from the from the, your work that you could give some people? Yeah. So one of the things that we're finding that's, um, I think, really fascinating is that the the attachment models that work with humans and infants, so adult caretakers and infants, actually are the ones that so far seem to map best onto the relationships between people with their um, cat and dog pets, even their adult cats and dogs. Um, And it makes some sense because we provide caretaking and protection for these animals throughout their lives. And so this relationship persists. So dogs and cats that are living inside humans' homes with their people are essentially living the life of a child in many ways. Um, (laughs) And so the relationships reflect that. And so one of the things that we found is that um, a lot of the predictive value of of sort of where these attachment style comes from, a big contributor is the behavior of the caregiver. And so just like with parents and offspring – Um, caregivers that provide consistent, reliable feedback to their pets who are, um, you know, who are kind (laughs) to them and who recognize when they have needs, whether it's hungry or they want to go for a walk or they want to play. Owners who are really sensitive to these things and responsive to their animals and primarily engage with them in sort of positive, um, warm ways end up with animals who are more likely to have secure attachments. And, um, you know, if, if the animal is feeling less secure, if you have a a strong attachment with an animal, but there are signs of insecurity, whether it's maybe, um, some separation distress when you leave or, which is actually quite common, um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're having a hard time calming in your presence. It, what it indicates is it, it might actually be useful to try to work on building that foundation of security, which is providing that warmth and that recognition that they're afraid and that positive feedback, which is a little bit different of what some of the traditional recommendations have been over the time, you know, worry over potentially reinforcing, you know, fearful behavior, worry about reinforcing anxious behavior. What some of this research is showing is that, well, in some cases, that might be a consideration and it certainly should be thought about. Um, In some cases, that might be what the animal needs is just that comfort and that security to know they're okay because you're with them. Um, And that can make a big difference in the the lives of the animals and the people. Hmm. That's so interesting. (laughs) Um, Our big Bernice mountain dog, he gets a little scared when he goes to the vet. Yeah. Um, But I think he just doesn't like needles because he's a kind of a big baby. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think that's uncommon. My dog isn't a special fan of going to the vet either, <laughs> but it does give us some guidance, right? So we can provide that social support and being able to provide social support 
when our animals are uncomfortable may actually be an opportunity to strengthen that bond. So uh, yeah, like we, we, we get comfort them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we don't <laughs> want our animals to be anxious, but if we think about it more from that parenting perspective, as opposed to simply, um, you know, in terms of trying to get rid of an unwanted behavior that we're also thinking about it from the fact that, you know, this individual is, is looking up to me and is scared, um, that op- opens an opportunity to be responsive to that need. And I think that strengthens the bond on both ends. Oh, very cool. I love it. <laughs> um, you've also done a little bit of work with, uh, or maybe a lot of work, you've done work with cats. Is there some social de- development different differences between like dogs, wolves, and cats? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would love to have a clean answer for you. <laughs> oh, that's okay. But, but yeah, I, I think we're I think we're still trying to understand. Um, actually, I would say we're still trying to understand the social behavior of all three species. But I think when it comes to cats, we're just really far behind. So I feel like <laughs> <laughs> because because there's this sort of bias, I would say unspoken, but I don't know how unspoken it is that that cats are are often considered less social or like they have less social needs that there's been less research on this topic than there has been with dogs which sort of have a reputation for being universally social and i would say that neither is entirely true in fact um both species are what we call facultatively social which means how social they are depends on their early development So you can get dogs that are completely solitary, you can get cats that are completely solitary, and you can get dogs and cats both that are happy in large groups and even colonies. Hmm. So so it really depends. And I I think when it comes to cats, um, you know, the, the differences are maybe not quite what many people would have initially thought. So in our social studies with cats, We find actually that many cats prefer social contact with their owner over any other positive thing we can give them, including play, including food. Yeah, it's sweet. Um, But oftentimes it's how we ask the question or how we test it that results in the differences. Um, So dogs are quite happy often to engage in, in experiments that require a lot of repeat trials. They'll keep going. Hundreds and hundreds of trials. They get (laughs) one piece of food on every trial and they will go for hours. Um, Cats, on the other hand, they get tired of of this you know, process in about like three trials. <laughs> They're like, we've, we've got it. We understand the task. We're done doing this monotonous thing over and over again. And of course, that's not true of every cat. Um, but I think a lot of what we have to learn as we start to investigate cat social behavior is how to ask the questions in a way that also makes sense when, when asking cats um, and really taking their own behavioral ecology into account as well. <laughs> That's so funny. How, how many? It just makes you think about what, why, the, why, and what those differences are, and how come? Like, is, yeah. does the cat get bored? Does it understand the task, and now it's beneath them? Like, does the dog just want the food more than the cat? I don't know, right? Yeah, that's, that's a cool. great question. I mean, I, I think part of it sometimes, um, sometimes with their personalities, you kind of get that vibe, right? The cat's done, but uh, <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with their, with their, you know, again, back to their behavioral ecology. So if you think about it, dogs are actually scavengers. Mm-hmm. So if you think about how they're used to acquiring food and problem solving to acquire food, they, they walk around, they find a trash can, they get in it, they get a little bit of food. 
They go a little bit further, they have to dig something up and they get a little bit of food and they might do this all day long. Whereas cats are predators. And so they engage in their, their big task, their hunt, they get food and then they rest. And so it might just have to do with, with things like that, where, um, you know, the, even just the way that they're used to working for, for a reward is different. And so in some cases, let's say we're asking a social question, but we're asking in a way that is repetitive as opposed to a buildup with some big social reward. We might get a different answer that has nothing mm. to do with social behavior, um, but it simply has to do with the way that animals are used to working for things or are used to achieving reward in their environment. So we have to be really thoughtful about the methodologies we use. It's almost like they're like the, how their natural selection slash evolution slash, you know, breeding comes into play big time. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we tend to prefer if we can for whatever tests we can using free choice methods, which are, um, when it's possible not to use discrete trials. So for example, trial one, we point at something and the animal has to go and we do the same thing a hundred times. Dogs are really good at those sorts of tests, but we've struggled with those sometimes with cats. And so with these attachment tests and some of the other tests that we've been doing more recently, it's more like the animal has two minutes to accomplish something oh, or two okay. minutes to behave how they want to freely. And we find it's much easier to do equitable comparisons between dogs and cats in that scenario for a lot of tasks. So the cat might get around to it at the end of the two minutes. Yeah. Or maybe they're really great and they do it right away and the dog oh. takes the two minutes. And the so dog's kind of slow. <laughs> yeah, it, it depends. But at least they have sort of that ability to behave in a way that makes sense based on their species and individuality. And we're not asking them to do the same thing over and over independent of how they performed initially. And, and we do tasks that, that go both ways. But I think that might be one area where we will find more success in cats is if if we adapt a little bit to the way that they really seem to perform better um, and can answer the questions that we're asking them sort of more honestly without being put in a situation that just is unnatural for them. Well, I'm so glad we've had this discussion about your research into animals. Uh, we don't often get to talk about the science of cats very often on the podcast. I do try to find, you know, cat studies um, because there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast that love cats. The latest one was the If I Fits, I Sit study about how cats sit in like uh, boxes. And then there's like a, a, a 3D representation of a box the cat still sat in. So that was kind of a fun one. Let's, let's move on. We always ask our guests to share a pet story with us. You grew up loving animals. I, I'm curious, do you have a, a pet story you could share with us from your life? I do. Um, I'll, you know, I'll probably, I have so many pet stories. Uh, I have some great ferret pet stories, but oh, I think, wow. I, I think I might actually share a, a story from my border collie that I have now, Ember, because she's, she's kind of a, a cool dog and sort of unusual origins. She was, um, so, so border collies sometimes have the reputation for, um, being, nervous about things. Um, not all, but you know, it's not an uncommon thing. And when Ember was a puppy, she was especially nervous border collie. She, she was hyper alert to just about everything. And, um, we got her under sort of unusual circumstances and, um, earlier than I would have liked. And so I really was concerned about making sure she was properly socialized. And so she, was socialized to everything that I could think of, especially mm -hmm. things that I was worried she would develop fears of later in life that are common. So, you know, loud noises and 
Um, and one of these things was vacuums. So, <laughs> so she was introduced to, at the time we had an old, big, upright yellow vacuum. She was introduced to this as a puppy. This is one of the first things that, you know, that she met and it, the introductions went so well that she decided that this vacuum was her companion and she would, we would find her curled up next to it sleeping. And whenever it was on and moving around, she followed it around the apartment and to this day, it's sometimes hard to vacuum, even with new vacuums, because not because Ember is afraid of vacuums, but because she thinks they might be a social companion waiting to happen. She'll, she'll, follow, <laughs> she'll follow them around. She'll stand in front of them. She'll play bow in front of them. So it's, it's been interesting to watch that as she's as she's aged. That's, but if you think about it from a dog's perspective, they don't have the same kind of like processing power we do. I mean, it obviously makes noise and it obviously is like kind of moving. So I guess that would be puzzling to a dog. Yeah, it's it's interesting her reaction to it. I think she has a sense that it's not actually alive, but her behavior towards it in some cases would suggest otherwise. It's It's been pretty fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, um, you know, similar to there's like robotic toys that like uh, we have like a little walking thing for Christmas and it sings a song and it walks across the floor. It's like a little elf. So when it's not doing anything, our dogs ignore it. But when it's on, they're like, oh, it's time to play with this thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> our uh, golden beaker, she she does not like vacuums. It's not like she's terrified of them. She just wants to like bite the air that they're dealing with. So that's a whole thing. we got to deal with that, I guess. Bunsen, the Bernice Mountain Dog, he could care less about You could vacuum him and he wouldn't care. He would just be like, well, okay. This yeah. Now? <laughs> funny though he he is scared of yellow wheelbarrows so i think all dogs have something that's their kryptonite yeah i think so (laughs) that's cute and how old is umber right now she's eight okay and as a border collie do you do like working stuff with them because um that's one of the things i've heard from a lot of people who have border collies they they need a little bit more exercise or a job Mm -hmm. yeah she's gone through multiple job scenarios she's she's adopted so border collies are interesting in that if if they don't have an assigned job they usually find a job and so she's had both assigned jobs and jobs (laughs) that she's found on her own or that she's tried to adopt on her own um she we did a lot of um language learning with her when she was young so this is about the time all the information on chaser was coming out and i had had an opportunity actually to work with chaser when i was a graduate student and um, and so she learned a lot of toy names and, and got pretty good, but then got to the point where I decided I don't want to have as many bins of toys in my back porch as John Pilly did, <laughs> Chaser's, Chaser's owner. And so, um, so then she had to be content with the number of toys that she had amassed, which was quite large. Um, <laughs> so she, she does a lot of cognitive work. She does get to go on lots of hikes and, and things. Um, I'd hope to maybe do agility with her someday, but she um, has some joint issues. So we do mm-hmm. a lot of low impact engaging with her. Yep. That's that's cool. You work out the the brain of uh, those really smart working dogs. Are, it can be worked out, and then they're good with a little less exercise. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> we have lots of bins of toys, um, but they're from BarkBox, and it's ridiculous. Have you heard of BarkBox? I have. I have. <laughs> it is. We get two toys a month, and Bunsen. Before we got Beaker, he would play with them for like five minutes, which was cute, and then he would ignore them. And then Beaker comes along and she destroys them. So this is good. <laughs> the toy bin is slowly decreasing in size because Beaker is shredding all of the BarkBox toys. 
Yeah, <laughs> you need some of that ebb and flow. Ember's very gentle with her toys, so we still have toys from when she's a puppy. So every new toy adds to <laughs> adds to her collection. Yeah, that's crazy. Bunsen still has toys from when he was a puppy, and we keep them away from Beaker because she would just destroy them. So, <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your pet story. That's uh, cute. Umber sounds like an amazing puppy. <laughs> Thanks. Um, the other question we always ask our guests for is the super fact. It's something that you know that when you tell people, it kind of like blows their mind a bit. Um, could you share a super fact with us? Well, I hope I hope this qualifies. Same on the theme of dogs. So one of the things that tends to surprise people when I talk to them about dogs and dog behavior is that even though we typically think of domestic dogs as pets or as companion animals, um, maybe as working animals, in fact, the majority of the world's dogs, uh, in fact, close to three quarters of the world's population are actually free roaming scavengers. So they're not dogs owned or directly cared for by humans. So in, in many parts of the world where this is still very common, like in India and in Russia um, and in Mexico and parts of South America, if you see a dog that is on the streets and looks unowned, that's maybe scavenging, there's a really good chance that that dog is in fact not a stray, but is a domestic dog in its natural environment. When we took a group of kids to Costa Rica, they were warned about that. They're like, okay, you guys are going to see some dogs. Um, maybe don't try and pet them because you don't know. Yeah. Uh, they look like they're somebody's pet, but uh, they're everybody's pet. They're the... the um, so they're just domesticated dogs that don't necessarily have an owner or they have an owner, but they're allowed to roam wherever. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole range, right? So that that's true. Sometimes that, you know, dogs range from having an owner and they're allowed to sort of freely exist. There are village dogs, which I think is kind of what you're referring to as dogs that are sort of taken care of by a community, but mm aren't necessarily claimed by any one individual within that community. And then there are also populations of free roaming dogs who aren't really claimed by anybody, but still exist in and around sort of human villages or human civilizations, um, scavenging and acquiring their own food, but utilizing human resources to do that. And I think um, we often think of that in terms of cats, you know, feral cats is, is something that we're still very much familiar with here. Mm. Um, but we tend not to think about that in dogs as much because in, in some parts of the world, that's sort of been deemed unacceptable. But in fact, in the majority of the world, if you look at the majority of the world's population of dogs, dogs are living the life that they initially evolved to live, which was not as a pet, but was as a, sort of a free roaming scavenger. That closely followed human civilizations for food. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, I saw somebody made a joke or it was a meme. It's like, where'd you get this dog? And they're like, oh, it's the seventh generation of show dog, you know, Tucker, some golden retriever, right? Where'd you get this this cat? Oh, her name is Princess and she, I found her in the garbage, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that's a difference in uh, North America with um, dogs and cats. Yeah. Um, do, do you think the dog, like, are the dogs living a good life? Like, are, are they... Do you, are they healthy and happy? Do they do okay? Are they or or is that something that as the world changes a bit, that should fade away and there should be more pet dogs, or is that just part of life for those dogs? I don't know. I'm yeah, curious. I mean, it, it depends on your perspective and who you're asking, I suppose. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly, dogs that are free roaming are potentially subject to 
the effects of the environment. They aren't necessarily being treated for health problems. They definitely don't live as long. So the average lifespan of a free roaming dog is maybe closer to five or six years, not, you know, 20 years. Um, and the same is actually true for wolves. Um, if, if we consider like a wild wolf, we might expect the average lifespan to be closer to five years. And in captivity, they might easily live to 20. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it depends on the perspective. You know, we could ask the same question about wild animals, and I think we would maybe come up with a different answer, right? That's so very we would true, say, yeah. yeah, wild animals are non domesticated animals that are in non captive environments. Like it's something that we aspire to for them in a way. <laughs> but right. because dogs are domesticated and because we're most familiar with these dogs living in our homes, we have these perspectives of free roaming dogs as if they're not they don't have it as good. Um, but biologically this is, this is their origins and they do have things that a lot of domestic dogs don't have. They have certain freedoms. They have more space. Um, they can reproduce in many cases, which might not be true of dogs in captivity. So from a biological perspective, we might have a different answer than from an owner's perspective. And so I think it really varies. And I think that's one of those tough sort of perspective and ethical questions mm-hmm. as well. Um, but certainly we should we should remember that the dog's origin was not as a pet, but is actually what most dogs still live today as, as these free roaming individuals. And it helps us, I think, better understand and appreciate our pets as well. Like I see, I see dogs and I would see them as family. Like if I saw like some mm-hmm. dog that was lost, I'd be like, oh man, where's your person? Whereas like another part of the world be like, I don't, I don't need people. I'm, yeah, I'm, <laughs> exactly. And I think that's the thing <laughs> is that it's so ingrained in us, right? To assume that every dog has a person, that even if we're in another place, it's sometimes hard for us to imagine that there could be dogs living out there that have never had a person, and but they have their own social network and they have their own um, <laughs> life. And, um, and in some cases, you know, it, it can be really difficult for those dogs if they're, especially if they're taken home, let's say, um, by someone who's well-meaning as an adult mm. and they haven't been socialized and that isn't their environment. Sometimes those dogs don't do as well as if they were just left in their natural home. So, um, yeah. yeah, so it's an interesting thing. And I think it really surprises a lot of people. I love it. That is a super fact. It leads to a super, super discussion and kind of like you just have to evaluate what you think about things. I love it. So you're saying if I catch a bunch of moose that are outside our house and domesticate them, they'll definitely live longer. So no, no I'm no, just probably kidding. not. No. I, I would. I would. <laughs> I'm really just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you, we, if you follow Bunsen and Beaker on social media, um, the Bunsen has found a bunch of moose legs every spring from moose uh-huh. that have died. Right, um, and people are like, "How did the moose die?" And I'm like, well, you know, the life of a wild animal is kind of a rough one. Um, they don't necessarily all make the winter. And that's kind of shocking for people to hear. So great super fact. Uh, the last section of the podcast is a really fun one. Our, our audience gets to know you as a, you know, somebody outside of your research a bit more. And it's the important to you or that you're the, what you're passionate about. You wanted to talk about uh, uh, cooking. Is that correct? Yeah, I thought I would share something, yeah, a little more laid back and, and and off the topic of animals. So, Did you pick up cooking because of being stuck at home or have you always liked to cook? I have pretty much always liked to cook. For me, I think cooking is kind of artistic. Like it's, a, it's an opportunity to be creative. So I'm certainly not opposed to following instructions in a cookbook and I certainly will to learn, but I really like 
the kind of cooking that allows you to be creative. And one of the things that has happened over the past year is eating in a lot more, eating at home a lot more. I have become curious about whether things that I typically would get out could be recreated effectively by me in in our home. Oh, yeah. So new tools for making donuts. And most of these things are unhealthy, I'm realizing as I get through <laughs> my head. Um, one, of, one of these things is a new ice cream machine. That's that's the newest gadget. Oh, cool. So yeah, we've only only just recently started exploring that, but I'm I'm super excited about things growing in our yard and in our garden that could become exciting ice cream flavors. I'm already eyeing like the lavender and the basil that's growing outside the kitchen window and imagining what interesting ice cream flavors could be created from that in the near future. Oh, cool. So you're thinking up like the flavors I see sometimes when I go places and I'm like, whoa, and then you try it and it's like actually not too bad. That's the plan. We're going to we're going to try out some unusual ones. Um though for people that are listening, I did try one time uh ketchup ice cream. It was disgusting. Not good. <laughs> Not good. Not good Sylvan Lake. So please try harder. <laughs> that is good to know. Maybe avoid that one. Maybe yeah. I don't know. Maybe you can do a better job. <laughs> I did have uh like hot sriracha ice cream and it wasn't too bad actually. It was okay. It was like kind of vanilla with sriracha. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes the spicy flavor. So I, for a while, um, I had a faculty job in St. Augustine, Flagler College, and they had a, there was a popsicle shop downtown that had just incredible, unusual popsicle flavor. <laughs> and they did all the, you know, habanero, raspberry, and um, all sorts of interesting peppers combined with different different fruity flavors and it's there's something about eating something so cold that's also spicy that's kind of interesting so your your ice cream maker is it like an old school one with like the rotor in the middle that you surround with ice and salt or is it one of the newer ones that looks like a rock tumbler this is a new fancy one and it actually so it actually looks like the older style ones in a sense that it has the churn but yep. it has the um, has a compressor to keep it cold. So Ooh, fancy schmancy. It is. It's very fancy. So, <laughs> um, but it's it's fun. It's easy to work with, um, which is just part of the thing. And and I have a six year old daughter who's getting to participate in the ice cream making as well. So it's kind of a fun bonding experience too. That's awesome. Um, I'd like to make pasta one time from scratch because that's one thing. Whenever we get back to eat out. Um, my my wife and my youngest son, they love pasta. I'm like, you guys, we're eating out. You don't need pasta. I can make this at home. And then they're always like, no, you can't. You can't make pasta from scratch. So I got to show them up one of these days. Um, oh, yeah. That sounds totally worth doing. <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> oh, well, that's cool. Um, is What's your signature dish? Last question about cooking. Like, what's Do you have a signature dish? Like if, if boom, Chef Ramsay popped up in front of you. And you were somehow when one of his cooking shows, how would you avoid his ire with your signature dish? Oh man, would I avoid? I don't know if I if I'm that good, but <laughs> I um I do like making beef Wellington. That is one of the things. Oh, that, yes, that's like one of the things they make on the show too. <laughs> uh, I know, so it's a very that's very risky territory, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's fun to make, and it's not something I make very often. So that's probably what I would try. That's so cool. I tell my students all the time. It's one of the jokes that they like listening to. I was like, I would, if I was on his cooking show, I would make like a grilled cheese sandwich. 
just something so simple just to have him yell at me. Cause I would just like, that would be, that's on my bucket list is to make a terrible meal for like a chef Ramsey person and just have them, you know, yell at me. I'd be like, Oh man, this is the greatest. <laughs> oh, very cool. Well, that's, that's neat that you talked about your passion. It was cooking. We've had one other guest actually talk about that as well. So I think, um, I think the pandemic and thinking differently about food has made people evaluate different things in their life. They're like, you know, you're, I don't know if if it was similar for you, but when it got bad, so your only trip out of your house was to the grocery store sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made you think differently about your relationship with food for sure. And if you can grow your own stuff, I mean, you can skip out the grocery store altogether. <laughs> exactly. Definitely appreciating the little things and the little moments a lot more. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, we're, we're kind of at the end of the interview. This has been, this has been so much fun. Um, can people follow you on social media? Are you, are you out and about in that realm? Well, our lab has a website. Um, so okay. the humananimalbond.com is a way you can learn about the work that we're doing. And you can also, um, email me if you have questions. It's, it's just my name, Monique Udell at gmail.com. So that's a possibility. Um, but you know, we are out there on Facebook and, and a few other social media outlets, but primarily our website is the best way to get information about what we're up to. Nice. Um, Monique, would you be okay with me putting those links in the show notes or at least the the website link? Okay. Yes, absolutely. All right. right, So folks who are listening, just go to the show notes and it'll be a hyperlink when this podcast comes out. You just go and then you're over there. Well, thanks for sharing your time with us today and talking about your research with animals. I've been smiling ear to ear listening to you chat, um, especially about your research. It just, um, it must be kind of fun working with animals on a daily basis some days, even though some days they're probably, um, are a little messy. <laughs> it is. They always surprise you. Oh, cute. Well, thanks for, thanks again. Uh, have yourself a great day and take care. Thanks. You too. It's time for Woo or Wow on the Science Podcast. And I have patron Liz Button with me today. How are you doing today, Liz? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm good. We were talking about weather because that's what people do. The first, <laughs> and uh, our heat wave has passed, but you guys are uh, you guys are a little sweltering right now. Yeah, it's about ninety degrees, and we're hoping that the remnants from I think it's Elsa is coming oh, up the coast. So right. Maybe, that's yeah. Yeah, maybe it'll cool it off to eighty. Is that is that a big deal? Is that going to mess up Florida? Um, we don't get a lot of hurricane news until it's like happening. Um, it's hitting them soon. I, in my mind, yes, but I think most people in Florida are pretty used to hurricanes coming through all the time. But that's why they don't have basements. That's that's right. I was so weirded out when I was talking to a bunch of people uh, about their basements, and they're like, "Yeah, there's no basements." I'm like, <laughs> I just couldn't wrap my couldn't wrap my head around it. It was really tough. I'm um, still stuck on the fact that you guys don't have an AC unit in Canada, but that's. No, a very few people, um, you know, if you are, you know, if you have, if you decide to spend the money on it and you have the money, then you probably have an AC unit. Uh, but in Alberta, very few people have AC units, um, unless you are in a newer house. Yeah. Uh, We just don't, you know, it's only, only occasionally in the summer you need that and then you're pretty good without it. Oh, one more question just for people, just a little bit about you. You, you are a psychology professor. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you were, you're teaching your round, just what's one of the things that you're working on teaching right now? Like a concept. Um, uh, I just had class last night. It was one of the 
our lifespan development class for our practical nursing students. And we spent a lot of time, I don't know if reminiscing would be the right word. We were talking about adolescent development and it's, it's so easy to be like, Hey, remember when you were a teenager, this is why everything sucked. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of fun. Or just made me realize that my experience of being a teenager in the nineties is very different than their experience from being a teenager like five years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. Very different. Um, I'm a child, I'm a teenager of the nineties as well. And, uh, you know, there wasn't any social media, so that, that's oh, the God, greatest yeah. difference in people who are, you know, quote unquote, l- older millennials, Gen Xers and, the you know, the younger millennials and the, the Gen Ys. Yeah. They, they've had to grow up with social media. For the betterment or for the worse? I don't know. I think a little bit for the worse, but that's there's to be. Some, there's some good stuff on social media. We found you guys. It can be good if you surround yourself with good. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Wow is trivia and it works this way. I read three statements. Two of them are fake. One of them is true. And you have to try and find the true statement. And no pressure, Liz, but you are the only person still batting 100%. You haven't got a single one wrong yet. Thanks for triggering my neuroses. <laughs> uh, and the topic this week is wolves. All right. So first statement. A wolf bite is strong and deadly. It has double the biting power, 1,500 pounds per square inch versus a large dog, which has only 750. So wolf has one, 1,500 yeah. and a dog has seven fifty. Yeah. Think like a large, okay. a large dog, like Bunsen sized or bigger. All right. Statement two. Wolves can eat an enormous amount of food in one sitting. Males will eat up to 20 kilograms or or 45 pounds of food in one meal. Wow. Okay. I did the conversions for the the pound people there. Okay. (laughs) All right. Statement three. Wolves are naturally amazing guard dogs. For those that are kept in captivity. Only one is true, two are woo. Is there one you're leaning towards that's a little fishy? I'm leaning towards the captive wolves being good guard dogs. Um, Because I remember there's like a wolf sanctuary somewhere and I remember seeing pictures of it. And you can, not that you would want to, but they're really friendly um, you can like put your head in their mouth and say so you can pet them and you disappear <laughs> into their fur. So I think if they're moderately not domesticated, because you're not going to do that. Um, I don't think there'd be very good guard animals. Okay. <laughs> um, so that leaves the bite and the food. Okay. And then I'm, I'm going between the two. I would say, so 20 kegs of food, food yeah 45 pounds yeah just estimating maybe i'm underestimating the size of wolves i'm gonna pretend they're maybe 100 150 pounds i really have no idea making that up um (laughs) 45 pounds seems like a lot and they kill things and of course now i'm thinking of your moose up there but (laughs) i don't think they would be able to one, keep everything else away and be able to eat it themselves, but I can't imagine getting 45 pounds of meat. So I'm going to, but then <laughs> I'm wondering about one, because I know you're tricky and sometimes you <laughs> slightly adjust numbers and maybe it's three times as opposed to two times. 
Um, Usually when I change numbers, it skews uh, quite a bit more than uh, double. Okay. If that um, helps. So, so 1500 PSI versus uh, 750 PSI. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with one being true and I hope that I'm right. <laughs> okay. Final answer, Liz. <laughs> All right, so the third statement you thought was not true, and mm-hmm. you're right. The last statement is a woo, um, and it's it's actually the the opposite. So you were you were right that it's not true, but you were wrong for what happens um, unless a, a wolf has been uh, born and uh, socialized with humans. If you keep it in captivity, it's they're really skittish, so they'll they'll choose to run away first. Um, Really? Yeah. So they are not good guard animals because anything unfamiliar, their first instinct is to hide uh, and not uh, not have a confrontation. Dogs come from... No, that was silver foxes. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So that leaves two statements, the bite oh, okay. and the food. Which one do you want to hear first? I want to hear how much they can eat because that's all I've been doing the past week. <laughs> <laughs> if the second statement is false you win because you thought the first statement was true right okay so the second statement wolves can eat an enormous amount of food in one sitting males will eat as much as 20 kilograms or 45 pounds of food in one meal that statement is a woo you're still a (laughs) hundred percent um it's way too much uh even the largest males struggle to eat nine kilograms mostly it's between five and eight kilograms which is less than 20 pounds um, wolves? Right. So it depends. Wolves can be about dog sized or they can be a bit bigger. Um, they can be pound poundage uh, up to, you know, really, really big ones could be over a hundred pounds easily. Uh, but they do range in, in weight, right? Like um, dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, just like dogs. Yeah. Um, the range I have for males is like the largest male wolf is pushing the scales at 80 kilograms. Um yeah. Big at yeah. all. And 80 kilograms is not quite 200 pounds, right? But still bigger than Bunsen. Bunsen's only 100. Um, but that's like a big, big, big wolf. Um, oh, like that one that uh, Pav's mom ran into? Oh, right. Yeah, the, the, that was a Newfie. Yeah, Newfoundlanders yeah. are e- this mind-boggling enormous. Like they're just on another scale of huge. Yes. <laughs> very, very cute dogs, though. They're just happy little happy giant things. <laughs> so you're right. The first statement is true. <clears throat> uh, wolves do have double the biting power of a, a, a normal dogs, so domesticated dogs. Um, and coyotes usually have more bite force as well, which is what makes a coyote who is uh, messing with your dog so dangerous is they can they can outbite uh, your dog. Um, just because of, you know, they're, they're just closer to the evolutionary pathway of always having to hunt or scavenge for food. Whereas... Mm-hmm. Whereas dogs have humans to help them out. I know like PSI and my tires, but like, what does that mean? Like pounds per square inch, like with a bite, what is. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Atmospheric pressure. This is a good, this is actually easy. Atmospheric pressure is 15. So a hundred times the, 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 the pressure of air pushing on you um, is the bite force of a wolf. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's pretty significant. Yeah, it's pretty significant. I think like a crocodile or an alligator. I used to have some of that memorized in kilopascals. <laughs> All right. So congratulations. You're still 100%. Thank you. Oh, man. every Are you going to just stop doing these and retire one of these days? <laughs> You're just going to shut her down? And... <laughs> I don't know. If I was you, that's why I might, I might toy with that idea. 
Uh, it's fun. I like being on these things. We got to uh, get some more of these patrons on there, man. They seem scared of it. Yeah. I, um, I think until you do it, you just think that it's, uh, you know, sometimes you lose, but it's, it's, it's always fun, I think. I think people always have fun, even when they lose. I'll have to ask Graham Walton, a colleague of mine. He's lost every single time. Maybe <laughs> maybe he isn't so happy with doing the Wooer Wow. <laughs> All right. It was good to chat with you again, Liz. And uh, thank you. Thank you also for being uh, a longstanding patron of Bunsen and Beaker. I'm excited um, for the stuffy. I know you guys got to you guys got to see the development of that. I just tweeted out the final picture to uh, to on the account, and you guys had that a couple days early. Um, and for people who are listening, patrons get uh, early access to the stuffy when it comes in. Yay! And I'm uh, I'm glad somebody pointed out their love of office supplies on spaces last night. Thank right? You. Yeah, yeah. That's um, uh, that was uh, Nancy, Doctor Von Meyer. Yeah, she pointed that out. Yeah. All right, it was it was great to have you. Uh, thanks again, Liz, and congratulations on your win. No problem. Okay, thanks. take care. Take care. Stay cool. Thanks. Okay. Okay, it's time for story time with me. Adam. If you don't know what story time is, story time is when we talk about stories that have happened within the past one or two weeks. I will start. If you don't know what happened, I got a little bit sick, got a bit of a runny nose, got plugged up, still a bit sinusy today, a bit nasally, um, but I'm feeling much better now. Uh, we got in to get a COVID test because my symptoms stayed for more than 24 hours, more than 48 hours even. Um, so we got a COVID test. It actually really wasn't that bad. Uh, they stuck a little, a little thing up my nose and then the lady was like, all right, it's going to feel like water. Did not feel like water. Felt very solid. Um, but no, it did not hurt whatsoever. It did make my eyes water, but that's because something is in my nose. Um, yep. Did not have COVID. Got my shot the next day. Felt, uh... Still, I'm feeling the after effects of it. My brain feels hot. Uh, no fever, uh, but my brain feels hot. So you're fully immunized, right, Adam? Fully immunized. For, uh, 13 days, and I'll be fully vac- uh, com- like, com- like uh, slightly immune. Yep. Very immune. Actually, Very immune. Because you got Pfizer. Yep, Pfizer. And, um, and then I think Bunsen knew you weren't feeling good. Yeah. So I was on the ground with Bunsen, and he became so cuddly. He was so cuddly. He was so nice. He was going... <laughs> Which is he makes groany sounds when he's happy. So you like rub his ears and he goes. <laughs> so it's funny because that's what he did. He was he was laying on the ground and he was being so nice and cuddly and cute. And when I got up, he got up and he followed me around for a little bit, and that's all good. Mom, do you have a story? I sure do. My story actually, it's pretty funny that you were mentioning that Bunsen was following you around because a consequence of me staying at home all year with the dogs is now Jason seems to think that I am Bunsen's selected person. Jason has informed me that the burner, the burner breed, um, selects one person that they attach to. So, uh, I've been testing this out, you know, doing a little bit of experimentation. Today, I said to Adam, uh, well, Bunsen was right beside me on the couch and he was barking and I knew he had to go outside. So I said, Adam, can you take out Bunsen, please? And, uh, Adam's like, sure. And then of course, Beaker's like, what, what? I'm, a, I'm, I'm going outside. I'm going outside. I'm ready. I'm ready. And, um, Adam called Bunsen and said, Hey, Bunsen, come on, come on, come on. And Bunsen was not budging. And I looked at him and I said, really? I know you have to go. Um, but nope. 
Bunsen was not leaving. And this has actually happened last week and the week before and the week before. And basically, uh, for a whole year, when Jason says, hey, Bunsen, let's go outside. Uh, Bunsen's like, is mommy coming? Yeah, it's super rude. It's, well, it's not rude. But it's a little bit rude. It's a little rude. It's a little rude. Because I take him on the adventures. I know, but I... I've been coming. I've been coming on the adventures. Yeah. Um, in fact, he doesn't go on the adventure. He's like, no, look, he, he won't go on the adventure without you. Know. He looks back and he's like, "Is mummy coming?" Uh, get ready for the winter. Oh. There I, is a there is maybe a dark cloud in the silver lining. Uh, have you Minus read forty cross country skiing with me? Have you seen me cross country ski? Um, it's very bad. It's very bad. I'm good at cross-country skiing. Yeah, I'm not bad. I'm good at sliding and falling and hurting myself. <laughs> That's like half of cross-country skiing, though, Mom. Yeah, you slide. Uh, and scream, falling. slide, scream, and fall. That's that's the three-step process, you wear, Mom. You can wear snowshoes. I will. I will wear it's snowshoes. Just, like just one foot in front of the other. <laughs> anyway, that's my story. All right, Dad, do you have a story? I uh, put the finishing touches on the dog armor for Bunsen and Beaker, and uh, we got them into photos. It was a gong show the first night. We tried to take pictures of them with me in costume, and um, Adam and Chris did try their best to help, and all Beaker wanted to do was dig a hole. So that was kind of the problem there. Um, But today I got them in their armor again, with maybe a little bit more calm with lots of treats, and they were rock stars. Chris was out there helping me or watching, and... And they were posing. Oh, I got such good shots of them in their armor. Um, and remember, they only wear their mask for a split second, and then they take the mask off. I take the mask off. Um, and both their armors are super comfortable to wear. Uh, I added. Uh, I'm. Get, I don't know if people are interested in this, but on Bunsen's armor, I added some chainmail around his neck that I printed on my new resin printer. And then I added some leather and fur accent that goes all, all the way around it. Um, no, it's faux fur. It's faux fur. Okay, it's not from... Is it faux fur? Uh, if you got it from Amazon for cheap, it's probably... It's faux fur. I definitely got it from Amazon. Well, who knows where it came from. But anyways, it's also on my Skyrim costume. It's faux fur. Okay. Well, if you were a, a Viking in Skyrim, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be faux fur. No, but it, yours is faux fur. Okay, it's faux fur. All right, what? full fur. Okay, I'm I'm confused. You're Why turning I, into a mum. I, I think I'm over. Adam, just wrap it up. Okay, yeah. Um, dad <laughs> turned into a mum. Uh, usually mum stories go forever, and then this time dad's stories went forever. All right, so that's story time. Um, I hope to see you uh, guys on the podcast next week. Um, bye-bye. That's the end of another Science Podcast episode. Thanks for coming back week after week to listen to our show. This one was really fun in the family section. <laughs> We've got two mics now. It's a little bit of a gong show. Um, special thanks to our expert guest in the podcast this week, Monique Odell. And also special thanks to our top-tier patrons on Patreon. Without their support, we wouldn't be where we are today. One of the things that happens is our top-tier patrons get their names read at the end of the podcast. If you want to hear your name read at the end of the Science Podcast, head over to the Patreon page and sign up. Take it away, Chris. Samantha Dodd, Kimberly Bond, Nate Stevenson, Debbie Anderson, Courtney Proven, Renee Hardy, Mary Rader, Shelby Leggett, Dan Bry, Mary Coos, Katla Lynch, Marianne McNally, Andrea Persons, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Karen Beth St. George, Bianca Hyde, Lynn Armstrong, Lisa Swartz, Catherine Jordan, Donna Craig, Lila Ashier, Jody Ogren, Liz Button, Kathy Zerker, and Ben Rather. Let's close with the dog's motto. For science, 
empathy and cuteness. <laughs>